Chapter 4 of Fighting the Flames This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Susie Fighting the Flames by R. M. Ballantyne Chapter 4 A Fierce Fight with the Flames when the small boy, whose name it may be as well to mention, was William, alias Willie, Wilders, saw the fire engine start, as has been already described, his whole soul yearned to follow it, for, in the course of his short life, he had never succeeded in being at the beginning of a fire, although he had often been at the middle and end of one, not a very difficult thing in london by the way seeing that there are on the average between four and five fires every twenty-four hours willie wilders was of an inquiring disposition he wanted to know how things were managed at a fire from the beginning to the end and he found that the course of true inquiry like another course we wot of never did run smooth poor willie's heart was with that engine but his legs were not they did their best, but they failed, strong and active though they were, to keep up with the horses. So Willie heaved a bursting sigh and slackened his speed, as he had often done before in similar circumstances, resolving to keep it in sight as long as he could, and trust to his eyesight and to the flames showing a light for the rest. Just as he came to this magnanimous resolve, a strapping young gentleman called a passing cab, leaped in, ordered the driver to follow the engine, and offered double fare if he should keep it in view up to the fire. Willie, being sharp as a needle, at once stepped forward and made as though he would open the door for the gentleman. The youth was already in and the door shut, but he smiled as he shouted to the driver, All right, and tossed a copper to Willie, with the remark, There, you scamp! The copper fell in the mud, and there Willie left it, as he doubled nimbly behind the vehicle and laid hold of it. The cabman did his best to earn his double fare, and thus it came to pass that Willie was in time to see the fireman commencing work. As the young man leaped from the cab, he uttered a cry of surprise and alarm, and rushed towards the crowd of firemen nearest to the burning house without paying his fare. Willie was a little astonished at this, but losing sight of the youth in the crowd and seeing nothing more of him at the time, he became engrossed in other matters. There were so many men on the ground, however, for just then a third engine dashed up to the scene of conflagration, that it was difficult for the excited boy to appreciate fully what he saw. He got as close to the engine, however, as the policeman would allow him, and observed that a fireplug had been already opened, and over it had been placed a canvas cistern of about a yard long by eighteen inches broad, stretched on an iron frame. The cistern was filled with water to overflowing, and the first engine had placed its suction pipe in it, while from the front of the engine extended the leathern hose that conveyed the water to the burning house. Willie was deeply interested in this, and was endeavoring to solve certain knotty points in his own mind when they were suddenly solved for him by a communicative dustman who stood in the crowd close by and thus expounded the matter to his inquisitive son. You see, Tommy, the use of the cistern is obvious. See, here's how it lies. 
if an engine comes up and scrooges its suction under the plug, all the other engines as comes after it has to stand by and do nothing. But by putting a cistern over the plug and letting it fill, another engine, or maybe two more, can ram in its suction and drink away till it's fit to burst, you see? Willie drank in the information with avidity, and then turned his attention to the front of the engine, to which several lengths of hose, each forty feet long, had been attached. Baxmore and Corney were at the extreme end, screwing on the branch or nozzle by which the stream of water is directed, and Dale was tumbling a half-drunk and riotous navvy head over heels into the crowd, in order to convince him that his services to pump were not wanted, a sufficient number having been procured. A couple of policemen walked this navvy quietly from the scene, as Dale called out, Down with her, boys! Pump away, lads, said one of the firemen, interpreting. The volunteers bent their backs, and the white cloud of steam that issued from the burning house showed that the second engine was doing its work well. Immediately after, Dale and his men, with the exception of those required to attend the engine and the branch, were ordered to get out the ladders. He who gave this order was a tall, sinewy man, middle-aged apparently, and of grave demeanor. His dress was similar to that of the other firemen, but there was an air of quiet, unobtrusive authority about him, which showed that he was a leader. "'We might get on the roof now, Mr. Braidwood,' suggested Dale, touching his helmet as he addressed the well-known chief of the London Fire Engine Establishment. "'Not yet, Dale, not yet. Get inside and see if you can touch the fire through the drawing-room floor. It's just fallen in.' Dale and his men at once entered the floor of the building, dragging the branch and hose along with them, and were lost in smoke. Previous to the arrival of the fire engines, however, a scene had been enacted which Willie Wilders had not witnessed. A fire escape was first to reach the burning house. This was then, and still is, usually the case, owing to the fact that escapes are far more numerous in London than engines so that the former, being always close at hand, often accomplish their great work of saving life before the engines make their appearance. The escape in the immediate neighborhood of Beverly Square was under the charge of conductor Samuel Forrest, a man who, although young, had already saved many lives in the service of the Society for the Protection of Life from Fire. When Forrest reached the field of action, Mr. James Auberly was seen at an upper window in a state of undignified dishabille, shouting for help and half-suffocated with smoke, with Mrs. Rose hanging round his neck on one side and Mattie Marion at the other. Poor Auberly, having tried the staircase on the first alarm, was driven back by smoke and rushed wildly to the window where the two domestics, descending in terror from their attic, clung to him and rendered him powerless. Forrest at once pitched his escape, which was just a huge scientifically constructed ladder set on wheels. The head of it reached to the windows of the second floor. By pulling a rope attached to a lever, he raised a second ladder of smaller size which was fitted to the head of the large one. The top of this second ladder was nearly sixty feet from the ground, and it reached the window at which Mr. Auberly was still shouting. 
forest at once sprang up. Leave me, save the women, gasped Auberly, as a man entered the room, but the dense smoke overpowered him as he spoke, and he fell forward. The women also sank to the ground. Forrest instantly seized Mrs. Rose in his powerful arms and, hurrying down the ladder to the top of the escape, put her into the canvas trough or sack which was suspended below the ladder all the way. Down this she slid somewhat violently but safely to the ground, while Forrest ran up again and rescued Maddie in the same way. Mr. Auberly was more difficult to manage, being a heavy man, and his rescuer was almost overpowered by the thick smoke in the midst of which all this was done. He succeeded, however, but fainted on reaching the ground. It was at this point that the first engine arrived, and only a few minutes elapsed when the second made its appearance, followed by the cab from which the young man leapt with the exclamation of surprise and alarm that had astonished Willie Wilders. Pushing his way to the place where Mr. Auberly and the others lay, the youth fell on his knees. "'My father!' he exclaimed wildly. "'He's all right, lad,' said Mr. Braidwood, coming up at the moment, and laying his hand kindly on the youth's shoulder. "'He's only choked with smoke and will be better in a minute. Any more in the house?' he added quickly. Young Auberly leapt up with a shout. My sister, is she not saved? Are all here? He waited not for a reply, but in another moment was on the fire escape. After him, two of you, said Braidwood, turning to his men. Two at once obeyed. In fact, they had leapt forward almost before the brief command was uttered. One of these firemen was conspicuous for his height and strength. He was first up the ladder. Close upon him followed Baxmore with a lantern. Nothing but smoke had yet reached the room into which young Auberly entered, so that he instantly found himself in impenetrable darkness and was almost choked as well as blinded. "'Have a care, Frank. The floor must be gone about this time,' said Baxmore as he ran after his tall comrade. The man whom he called Frank knew this. He also knew that it was not likely anyone had been left in the room from which the master of the house had been rescued, and he thought it probable that his daughter would occupy a room on the same floor with her father. Acting on this supposition, and taking for granted that the room they were about to enter was Mr. Auberly's bedroom, the tall fireman dashed at once through the smoke and tumbled over the prostrate form of young Auberly. "'Look after him, Baxmore!' he gasped as he seized the lamp from his comrade's hand and darted across the room and out into the passage, where he went crash against the door and burst it open. Here the smoke was not so dense, so that he could breathe, though with difficulty. One glance showed him where the bed was. He felt it. A female form was lying on it. The light weight and the long hair which swept across his face as he raised it gently but swiftly on his shoulder told him that it was that of a girl. At that moment he heard a loud shout from the crowd, which was followed by a crash. Dashing once more across the passage, he saw that a lurid flame was piercing the smoke in the other room. The staircase, he knew, was impassable, probably gone by that time. But he had not time to think, so he drew the blanket over the girl's head and bounded towards the window. There was a feeling of softness under his feet, as if the floor were made of pasteboard. He felt it sinking beneath him. 
down it went, just as he laid hold of the head of the fire escape, from which he hung suspended in the midst of the smoke and sparks that rose from the falling ruin. Strong though the young fireman was, he could not raise himself by one arm while the other was twined round Louisa Auberly. At that moment, Baxmore, having carried young Auberly down in safety, again ascended and appeared at the window. He seized Frank by the hair of the head. "'Let go my hair and catch the girl!' shouted Frank. "'All right!' said Baxmore, seizing Lou and lifting her over the window sill. Frank, being thus relieved, swung himself easily on the sill and, grasping Lou once more, descended to the street where he was met by Mr. Auberly, who had recovered from a state of partial suffocation and who seized his child and hurried with her into a neighboring house. Thither he was followed by Mrs. Rose and Maddie, who had also recovered. During these episodes, the firemen had continued at their work with cool and undistracted attention, and here the value of organization was strikingly and beautifully brought out. For, while the crowd swayed to and fro, now breathless with anxiety lest the efforts of the bold conductor of the firescape should fail, anon wild with excitement and loud in cheers when he succeeded, each fireman paid devoted and exclusive attention to his own prescribed piece of duty as if nothing else were going on around him, and did it with all his might, well knowing that every other piece of work was done, or point of danger guarded, by a comrade, while the eagle eyes of Mr. Braidwood and his not less watchful foreman superintended all, observed and guided, as it were, the field of battle. And truly, good generalship was required, for the foe was fierce and furious. The devouring element rushed onward like a torrent. The house was large and filled with rich furniture, which was luxurious food for the flames as they swept over the walls, twined round the balustrades, swallowed the paintings, devoured the woodwork, and melted metal in their dread progress. But the foe that met them was, on this occasion, more than a match for the flames. It was a hand-to-hand -hand encounter. The men followed them foot by foot, inch by inch sometimes almost singeing their beards or being well-nigh choked and blinded by dense volumes of smoke, but, if driven back, always returning to the charge. The heat, at times, beat on their helmets so fiercely that they were forced to turn their faces aside and half turn their backs on the foe, but they always kept their weapons, the branches, to the front, and continued to discharge upon him tons and tons of aqueous artillery. "'Get up to the windows now. Use the escape,' said Mr. Braidwood. And as he said this, he passed through the doorway of the burning house. Some of the men rushed up the escape and let down a line, to which one of the branches was made fast. "'Avast, pumpin' number two! shouted Baxmore from the midst of clouds of smoke that were bursting out from the window. Number two engine was stopped. Its branch was pulled up and pointed inside, straight at the fire. The signal given, Down with number two! And a hiss was followed by volumes of steam. The work of extinction had at last begun in real earnest. As long as they could only stand in the street and throw water in through the windows at haphazard, they might or might not hit the fire. And at all events, they could not attack its strong points. But now... Baxmore at one window and one of the men at the first engine at another, played point-blank into the flames, and, wherever the water hit, they were extinguished. Presently, 
they got inside and began to be able to see through the smoke. A blue glimmer became visible. The branch was pointed and it was gone. By this time, the second floor had partly given way, and fire was creeping down the rafters to the eaves of the house. Baxmore observed this and pointed the branch straight up. The fire at that part was put out, and a heavy shower of water fell back on the fireman, drenching him to the skin. The attack had now become general. The firemen swarmed in at the doors and windows the moment that it was possible for a human being to breathe the smoke and live. One of the engines attached two additional lengths of hose, dragged the branch through the first floor to the back of the house, got upon an outhouse, in at a back window, and attacked the foe in rear. On the roof, Frank and Dale were plying their hatchets, their tall figures sharply defined against the wintry sky and looking more gigantic than usual. The enemy saved them the trouble of cutting through, however, for it suddenly burst upwards and part of the roof fell in. It would certainly have taken Frank prisoner had not Dale caught him by the collar and dragged him out of danger. Instantly a branch was pointed downwards and the foe was beaten back. From above, below, before, and behind, it was now met with deluges of water, which fell on the shoulders of the men in the lower floor in a continuous hot shower, while they stood ankle-deep in hot water. In ten minutes after this the fire was effectually subdued, the lower floor having been saved, although its contents were severely damaged by water. It was only necessary now that one of the engines should remain for a time to make good the victory. The others rolled up their hose and prepared to depart. The King Street engine was the first to quit the field of battle. While the men were getting ready, Mr. Auberly, muffled in a long cloak, stepped from the crowd and touched Frank, the tall fireman, on the shoulder. Sir, said he in a low voice, you saved my child. I would show my sense of gratitude. Will you accept of this purse? Frank shook his head, and a smile played on his smoke-begrimed countenance as he said, No, Mr. Auberly, I am obliged to you, but I cannot accept of it. I do not want it, and besides, the men of the brigade are not allowed to take money. But you will let me do something for you, urged Mr. Auberly. Is there nothing I can do? Nothing, sir, said Frank. He paused for a moment and then resumed. Well, there is something that perhaps you could do, sir. I have a little brother out of employment. If you could get him a situation, sir. I will, said Mr. Auberly with emotion. Send him to me on Thursday forenoon. He will find me living next door to my... to my late home. I shall stay with a friend for some time. Good night. Men of King Street Engine, get up cried Dale. Stay! What is your name? said Mr. Auberly, turning round. But Frank was gone. He had leapt to his place on the engine and was off at a rattling pace through the now silent and deserted streets of the sleeping city. Although they drove on at a great speed, there was no shouting now, for neither bus, cab, nor footed passenger blocked up the way. And the men, begrimed the smoke and charcoal, wet and weary, with two hours of almost uninterrupted labor of a severe as well as dangerous character, sat or stood in their places in perfect silence. On reaching the fire station, they leapt to the ground, and all went quickly and silently to their neighboring homes and beds, 
except the two men on duty. These, changing their coats and boots, lay down on the trestles and at once fell fast asleep, the engines and horses having been previously housed. And then Dale sat down to make an entry of the event in his day-book. The whole thing might have been only a vivid dream, so silent was the room and so devoid of any evidence of recent excitement, while the reigning tranquility was enhanced rather than decreased by the soft breathing of the sleepers, the ticking of the clock, and the scratching of Dale's pen as he briefly recorded the facts of the fire that night in Beverly Square. End of chapter 4